I'm Tracy V. Wilson, one of the hosts of the podcast, Stuff You Missed in History Class. We have just put out a new episode on Jeanne Barre. She is the first woman known to circumnavigate the globe. We did that episode thanks to sponsorship from the all-new 2020 Ford Explorer, and we want to thank them for sponsoring the show. Stay tuned for some favorite clips from that episode. For his part, Carmersal claimed that he was totally surprised with this entire revelation, writing that Beret was, quote, a courageous young woman who, taking the clothing and temperament of a man and the curiosity and audacity to circumnavigate the world, accompanied us without us knowing it. Uh, I think he might have been covering his own tail there. <laughs> he really... Uh, <laughs> It is just bordering on impossible that you would not have recognized her. If you like what you heard just now, give us a listen. Check out Stuff You Missed in History Class on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hello, Futurelings. This is Ken. And this is John. We're going to take a second here before the show begins to celebrate the holiday winter solstice season. Mm -hmm. The solstice. The solstice, we call it. It's like the Soviets. The poultice. If you put a poultice on a Soviet because he's turning red, it's a solstice. Just to mention that uh, with the advent of the holiday season in late November 2019. I like how you threw advent in there. That's nice. Yeah, it's yeah. just a lot of just a lot of subtle Christianity mm-hmm. every time I talk. <laughs> I'm offended by the Starbucks cups that don't yeah. have a manger on them. Every day I open a little door in Ken <laughs> and I get another tiny piece of chocolate. Uh, you know, we we were so thankful for your support around the Thanksgiving season that we uh, after months of putting it off, we finally rolled out a series of delightful benefits and rewards for those who have supported the show. We've been we've been so grateful uh, for the Patreon support of our program. It has eased our transition away from our former corporate masters and made us feel like independent operators and futurelings ourselves. And so we wanted to give back in this time of giving and actually have uh, Patreon levels that have different uh, rewards. So give yourself the gift of perks this holiday season. What are some of our perks, Ken? Well, anybody who donates at any of the Patreon tiers receives probably the main perk, which is a monthly omnibus episode of Addenda Mm. that goes reader feedback, pointing out uh, corrections and additions and addictions, possibly. A lot of presentlings have information they'd like to share with us about various topics. Sometimes it's because they live in the town that we discussed. Sometimes it's because they are uh, lapidiatrists. If there's one thing all omnibus listeners have in common, it's they have information to share. <laughs> so we uh, and we wanted to make sure that one in the time capsule. That's as well. right. That's right. We're going to cover cover all the bases, and so it's a it's a it's a fun listen, a fascinating listen. A new monthly episode uh, uh, available to all our donors at higher donation levels. You get access to a, a video, a image archive. Um, show notes and uh, mailbag oddities and whatnot. You're going to be astonished by the difference between our show notes. Mine are in pencil and John's are in ink. That's, yeah, basically it. That's the main Ken's one. Ken's are legible and mine are not. John's have pentagrams they on them. often do. <laughs> uh, at even higher tiers, you can get an autographed copy of those show notes uh, mailed to you uh, or even uh, the ability to choose a show topic and 
rocket your preferred omnibus idea to the top of the queue. Yeah, we're going to try and make that as difficult as possible uh, <laughs> for you to achieve, but it is a perk. It may be collaborative if your idea is terrible or offensive, uh, and uh, or even uh, video chats with the two of us. So go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject, see what tempts you, what tickles your fancy, mm, what mm. craveable new benefits there are for mm. you to enjoy. Crave. Crave. My favorite word. Moist. Happy holidays, everyone. Receiving this message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. You have accessed entry 767.jb2415, certificate number 29692, the Max Headroom Intrusion. This is my, my Max Headroom, and what you're about to witness is one of the most sinister-sounding intros to a trailer to one of the greatest epics ever produced in the history of te television. And there's more, because you are going to see it as well. Yes, it. Yes, it. Yes, namely, the Max Hedrum Syndrome story. Now you, as a computer guy, must have some... As a computer guy. I'm a computer-generated <laughs> guy. <laughs> as a computer guy. Uh, you must have some opinion or some relationship to hacking, hacking as a concept, hacking as a philosophy. Uh, you, no. Next you, question. You have none. You haven't generated any you haven't generated any opinions about about hacking um, it, I'm annoyed by it are you like even if you work as a computer programmer you're primarily a user of other people's products mm -hmm. you don't just um, you know do the thing where you crack your knuckles back and then twiddle your fingers and then just start typing into a mainframe command line and invent, rewrite the encryption computer science. <laughs> yeah. We're going to find a back door into the <laughs> seashell. Uh, no. Uh, so I'm annoyed when my stuff doesn't work. Right. And so I associate hackers with products and incidents and pranks that make my stuff not work. Malware and spyware and viruses and worms. Um, and I'm aware that there's a whole kind of, anarchist culture built mm. around these amazing heroes but uh i'm just annoyed by their work how do you feel about culture jamming in gen in general as a concept i mean the idea being that there's a mainstream culture which is exclusive and walled off 
and that mainstream culture promotes and promulgates a certain ideology. The status quo. That's right. The man. <clears throat> and that uh, the only way for those of us who are excluded, and I'm, those of us, I'm, I, mean, I flatter myself, <laughs> excluded from uh, mainstream culture, uh, the only way to gain access to uh, the eyes and ears of the masses, uh, and and this I think was was much more of a prevalent mentality before there was an internet that that right. you know amplified any voice. For the first time, we're living in an age where you can culture jam just by starting a podcast or a vlog or a YouTube channel. Right. One could say that we were culture jammers, although I don't think anyone would say that. I don't think we should say that. But it's still a, uh, it's still even in this world of like incredibly proliferated channels and, and access to the access to whomever you can, um, attract. It still is a common trope that there is, that there's a mainstream culture that is not, um, that that's controlled and that and that is uh broadcasting a, a a sophisticated and exclusive ideology that has brainwashed the majority and with a bad aesthetic right it's watered right. down pablum it's not good for us right. it it's gruel spoon fed it doesn't even garbage. matter if it's dumb or or malicious it's mostly uh driven by the needs and uh and desires of advertisers and the advertising industry the ultimate bad guy in our in our media world that's why to me public radio is the ultimate culture jamming mm. not beholden to advertisers yeah. i feel like a bit of a bad boy when i listen to like <laughs> like will be gone or whatever nightline <laughs> no no nightline no, a, that's see. a that's a mainstream ABC, broadcast. That's right? Disney. That's Sorry. the biggest conglomerate in the world. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know, we've talked about it before, but in the in the seventies and eighties and and nineties, even um, there was a you know an underground culture of people that really were trying to subvert not only the dominant paradigm, but even some. You know, some less dominant some paradigms. Some B or C level paradigms. <laughs> what, would right. you, what would you say were the runner-up paradigms of the 70s and 80s? <laughs> and, you know, I think the runner-up paradigms were often um, – I, I, it was the the local level of, as you say, watered-down kind of mealy-mouthed imitations of the, of the sort of global network of, of corporate – Media domination, domination. So not Saturday Night Live, but like SCTV. Well, no, the I mean those guys were culture jammers, or I mean thought considered that. No, I'm talking about like local news programs and the you know your local Pontiac dealer that's buying ads that are I don't know crowding out your anarchist messages, but also what your, could be more anarchist than Crazy Mike? He's slashing <laughs> all prices. And that, and I mean, this is a, that's a, that, I think a valid critique of, of the, uh, of the, the idea that there is a monolithic media because of course, I mean, the, the benefit of an advertising culture is that you can buy, if you have the money, you can buy an ad on any one of these local television programs and put your mega church up there or, I mean, it's just a question of is that is that how you want to spend your cash? But you could buy a. I, I worked at a television station. It was a, it was my first job. I didn't know you worked at. A, you worked in a local TV. <clears throat> I did. What did you do? 
Well, it was a little bit of a culture jam um, <laughs> in uh, in the mid eighties. I can't wait to see how you were disrupting <laughs> Anchorage TV. Well, just wait. In the mid eighties, there was uh, with the rise of MTV and the popularity of it, there was briefly uh, an idea that there was room in the in the culture sphere for local twenty four hour music television stations. Oh, local VJs. Local VJs. And so uh, in several locations around the country, including Anchorage, uh, UHF 24-hour music video stations opened. And in Anchorage, it was called Catch 22, and it was on UHF Channel 22. <laughs> and it was it, – Did you get a cease and desist from the Joseph Heller estate? <laughs> no, I don't think I ever did. Uh at the time, there wasn't anything on UHF. I don't even remember. I mean, I remember looking at the UHF dial on our old dial TVs and wondering what the heck it was even there for. Well, in Alaska, you would just flip through station after station of snow, and you wouldn't yeah. be able to know if it was an actual out, outside uh, video feed of snow. We had a hundred different words for, <laughs> U- for, for UHF, <laughs> UHF <snow>. stations. <laughs> um but uh, but Catch Twenty Two uh, opened, I you know, to great local fanfare. Really, and it had um, it had a twenty four hour feed. Was it all local Alaskan music videos? <laughs> well, no, it was. I mean, we had uh, we had a library <clears throat> on. Uh, it was broadcast standard VHS tapes, so they weren't. It's like this oversized ones. Yeah, right? they're oversized, right? They weren't the consumer ones, and and. Um, and we acquired a library of music videos. Now, they weren't all – we didn't have all of the good music videos. A lot of them were, you know, second <laughs> you rate. You a library of public domain. <laughs> <laughs> no, and we were getting new videos all the time. Sure, because record companies would send those out even to these local stations, I assume. That's right. They want to get airplane. And I, and I should give a shout-out right now to a listener of the Omnibus uh, in our present day, a futureling but, in the, but a presentling. Confusing. Uh, whose name is Richard Hadley, and he's actually active on our Facebook page. Richard was the program director of Catch-22 <gasps> in Anchorage. He was, a, he was a transplant from the great state of Iowa. And one of these characters that uh, you know, was in Iowa wondering what to do after having graduated from his you know, corn agra college program or whatever. I and, majored in corn. And he, uh, he was a member of the rockabilly subculture. And he and a good friend moved to Anchorage as part of their Western exploration. Did, a lot, did Anchorage have an amazing rockabilly scene? It did not. <laughs> Yet. And so these two guys were very colorful characters. They showed up in Anchorage with their, you know, their, their slicked up pompadour haircuts and their, uh, you know, their, they wore creepers, I think. And they had um, they're pretty stylish dudes. Or, you know, stylish as far as rockabilly goes, right? I mean... Is that a low bar for style? <laughs> I think it's right in there. It's right up there was ska. Many other genre style <laughs> begins where rockabilly style leaves off. But these two characters, like, they bought a 54 Chevy, which, you know, only had one headlight. And and um, somehow they, they got this job... Uh, at, uh, at you know, sort of starting Catch Twenty Two, the the they they didn't uh, they weren't like the business people behind it. They were the first on air personalities. Did Richard hire you? He did, and so I was in high school, and Catch Twenty Two came on the air, and I was just 
wrapped with the idea that there i mean it was it wasn't a good television station but it was what we all dreamt of which was you had the you had a local path to becoming a vj the greatest of all jobs i could ride my bike over to here and i did ride my bike to work <laughs> and i went in and i've never done another thing like this in life but i wanted so desperately to be a VJ on Catch-22 that I rode my bike there, and it was not close to my house, every day. And I sat in the lobby with my VHS tape that I had made. You made an audition tape. Of me going like, hey, Anchorage, you know, how's it going? And I sat there, and there was a receptionist, and she was like exactly what you would imagine, the receptionist of a startup television station in Anchorage, Alaska. Like she was young and vivacious, but you know, and, and f- super friendly, but also, I mean, it was absolutely like WKRP type situation. And she would say, uh, Richard's, uh, Richard's busy. He'll see you in, you know, he's, he'll see you in a minute. And then Richard Hadley would always escape out a side door and at the, you know, and I would sit <laughs> in the lobby and she would say, Oh, he's left on an important mission. And I would you know, go home and and come back the next day. And I did it relentlessly until one day Richard Hadley, the Richard Hadley came out from, from his, you know, his, uh, his glass walled office in the back. He forgot you were there. No, no, no. He knew I was there. He was, he was purposely ignoring me. Oh, you're saying he forgot I was there that one day. No, I, I, he, I'd given the videotape. It was one of these things where he kept waiting for me to just get tired and stop coming. Les Nussman would never do that. And, uh, and eventually he was like, all right, I'll see your videotape. And then he watched it and it was, it was terrible. Right. I was, it was terrible. I set up a VHS camera across the room and tried to be, um, Nina Hagen. I'm imagining you walking into the frame at the beginning of it. (laughs) With my, you know, like. After having hit start on the camera. My rubber chicken in one hand. And and he said, all right, listen, I'll give you a job, but here are the conditions. One, you never skip school. If if I ever catch you skipping school, you're fired. Uh, And the second one was, he said, you can never actually, your face can never appear on air. <laughs> your voice can. You can do voiceovers, but you're just going to be like working the technical stuff, you know, the switching and stuff. And I was like, fine, fine, fine. I'll take the job. <clears throat> and then it became clear that what he wanted was he needed somebody to do the overnight shifts. Nobody wanted to do the the 1 a.m. to 8 a.m. shift at a local UHF television station. Well, he shouldn't have been having a high school junior doing it. Like this, <laughs> it's true. I was don't 16. You have, don't you have a geometry test in the morning? I was 16. And so I did, I, w- I did overnights on weekends. Mm. And, uh, and also that was where he relegated the country music show and the rap show. So, he, so he liked every kind of music. <laughs> so except- I, did, I did like a four hour country show and a four hour rap show on nights on weekends. Does this explain your deep love today of, of country, country and, and rap? And, and well, and rap? country rap crossover. That's your main, your main field of interest. <laughs> yeah, that, we call you kid Roderick. <laughs> kid Roderick. But it was, it, it happened. Uh, this was in the, <clears throat> excuse me. This was in the mid eighties when this type of, uh, when this type of thing felt like uh, it felt like the future, and it felt like Catch Twenty Two was culture jamming, 
uh, it was the first time anybody in Alaska had ever seen a rockabilly person, presumably. But also there was a, a guy named Frank Harlan who um, who was an Anchorage punk rocker who had a uh, who had a a zine called Warning, the Warning fanzine, which was like when Warning came out, every alternative kid <laughs> in Anchorage scrambled to get a copy of this fanzine that was talking about you know punk rock. And Frank had a, a show called Bomb Shelter Videos where he played punk rock videos. And even after Catch-22 fell apart, Frank moved to Seattle and his bomb shelter videos was on public access TV down here. And he became kind of a, I don't know if I'm going to say tastemaker, but he was a media, local subterranean media personality for a long time. So the thing about culture jamming is often the thrill of it is that it's illicit, right? You're getting away with something. Well, you imagine that- And that's not true here. I mean, these guys- I'm sure we're selling local ads for local mattress. Oh, they were. They firms were on there. But but the idea being that if you expose people, and we see this, I think, throughout our culture, the idea that if you expose people to something outside their comfort zone, something radical, that that alone might be enough to shake the foundations of their of their uh, tenuous grip on norm- normality. You got to wake up the sheeple. That's right. And having done it, having destabilized them with one Agent Orange video or one, <laughs> you know, sort of even a snarky comment from a, uh, a VJ from Iowa who's arrived in Anchorage and doesn't really understand or care about the local culture, uh, that that is going to be enough to maybe maybe radicalize somebody and turn them into an art consumer, somebody who's seeking out um, – you know, alternative history or, or seeing a different side of politics I and that that could be transformative, that that could change the world. I guess that's true. If you imagine the young audience for this kind of thing, those are the people, because I, I think generally exposure to this kind of thing more often than not just calcifies a culture. <laughs> like, yep, I was right. I didn't like punk rock. <laughs> what is this on channel 22? That's right. But you're right that there's a small group of vulnerable young people that you can trick. Well, yeah. I should say influence. Influence. <laughs> and you could set them on a different path because uh, you probably are cooler than what's on uh, – than the Bewitched reruns on, on Channel 7. And I think that – I think you're you're absolutely right. It, 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 some By the time someone is a middle-aged mom and dad living in a, in a uh, Levitt town somewhere, uh, the idea that Frank Harlan coming on and um, and, you know – waving a rubber chicken in front of them on their UHF station is not going to cause them to stop believing in, in Jesus. They're not all going to have a Mohawk the next day, but they're, they're kids looking around for something that's going to piss off mom and dad, dad. (laughs) right? You can reach them and maybe change their course. I mean, the only thing I knew about rockabilly was the stray cats going in, but becoming friends with Richard, um, I briefly knew the names of a couple other rockabilly bands that I've since forgotten. But I, I did, you know, I did develop an affection at least for for that culture. I know it, I, you know, I, I never bought a pair of Creepers, but I know what they are. At least it didn't set you on a permanent path of rockabilly rebellion. No, 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 no. And that's... You later chose your own path, but you had options. I did. I had options. It wasn't just uh, whatever, your parents' Pericomo records. Well, and I learned that I really liked Bluegrass. 
and because I had because you had to do the bluegrass, I show. had to do the bluegrass <laughs> show, and um, I learned about the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. But uh, you know, I already liked rap, so doing the rap show was actually pretty fun. And I would get phone calls from people in the community calling up and requesting videos, and I learned all about video production. So you guys got requests? Oh yeah, people would call up and say, you know, critique videos. I mean, they're just watching local music videos in the middle of the night. And oh, and this is the thing, right? Cable TV was not universally affordable for people. So yeah. this was an opportunity to have a local MTV that was free. I remember thinking cable TV was a terrible idea. My grandparents had it and there was an extra box. Wait, you have to you have to use a box to watch TV? Yeah. Hard pass. We have TV at our house and there's no box. There was briefly so Anchorage had the original before cable, before wired cable, there was a um there was an era of uh, like microwave transmitted premium television. And in Anchorage, it was called Visions. And Visions required that you have a special antenna. And it wasn't a dish. It was kind of shaped like a corn cob. <laughs> and it was up on a pole. And you could drive around Anchorage and tell which houses had Visions. And if you had Visions, it was, you know, that was premium. And it was HBO. Uh, but it was only one channel, right? So for a while it would show HBO and then it would show something from Showtime and then it would show, you know, it had visions had its own programming, which was a combination of <clears throat> first run movies. And then at night it would show uh, like soft core, like Cinemax, Cinemax kind of, um, you know, they're not, they're not even dirty movies with the real dirty stuff cut out. There was a genre in the, yeah. 70s and early 80s of movies that had racy parts, but they also had plots. Not great plots. They were really terribly acted. You had to find a kind of actor who wanted to act, but also was willing to take their clothes off and simulate intercourse. You had to be interested in both red shoes and diaries, <laughs> and then you could do this kind of thing. Yeah, so it wasn't like, I don't think... There are a lot of great actors that got their start there. Um, I think probably if you were going to either go to Hollywood or go into porn, you generally like slid into porn. These, are, for, than, these are people who wanted a middle way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a reasonable centrist. I see the virtues of both show business and pornography. They wanted to be able to tell their mom and dad that they were an actor. Mm -hmm. And hopefully their folks would never see their films. Or maybe they would... They'd send the film home on v VHS with the racy bits cut out. How, but how long would Dangerous Desires 3 <laughs> even be if you cut out the 20-minute simulated? The Great Texas Dynamite Chase is one <laughs> film I remember. So this was a premium subscription kind of service? You'd pay a monthly fee yep. to get your corn cob? Yep, and they would put the corn cob up on your roof, and everyone in Anchorage would know that you had visions. Your sons will have dreams and your daughters will have visions? But there was one... There was one there, Briefly at my dad's house, somebody in the in the close proximity to us had visions. And if you turned the TV between <laughs> channel 13 so it its own band, and UHF, it was, it was some, you know, some amount of that microwave signal got into a regular TV antenna and I could watch visions. Now, you're, was, you're miming that you're actually holding the analog dial yeah. between the two, and that's what you would have to do? You had to put, you know, because analog dials would go, click, would go click, click, thunk, thunk. click, yeah. right. And so if you got between channel 13 and the UHF uh, and kind of 
balanced it there, you could watch Visions. This is the oldest you have ever sounded to, to anyone <laughs> listening. I show, like, I have, a, I have a slideshow I do for elementary schools where I show, like, uh, a game show playing on an old-timey TV because I'm talking about my childhood. And it's not an old-timey TV. It's just a, you know, it's a, yes, it is. It's a 1980 Zenith or Magnavox or right. something. And the kids will literally ask, why would you watch TV on a microwave? Because they have never seen a television set with wooden veneer <laughs> yeah. and, and physical dials. Hey, Ken, do you ever find yourself in a situation where you need a last-minute gift that's, you know, that's going to wow somebody? Very often, because I take pride in giving good gifts, but I also really procrastinate shopping for gifts. Well, can, you, can you help me with this problem, Yeah, John? I have uh, discovered an excellent solution to this. It is the uh, Mrs. Fields uh, super box of delicious cookies, brownies, and treats. Uh, I've been snacking from one for the last couple of weeks. And uh, it has exceeded my expectations. They sent me. They sent me one as well. Yeah. And it was probably the happiest I've ever been since starting this show. When a box of cookies it's, and brownies and blondies showed up in the mail in a, in a delightful festive tin. Yeah. And they were at first. You're like cookies in the mail. Are they going to be good? They were really good. They're super good, and uh, and it's a great example of a thing that um, if you if you need a gift for somebody and you you just want to pull the trigger on something, you can't go wrong with this Mrs. Fields box of goodies. You can sit at your country, sit at your computer, and it will show up across the country uh, in a matter of days. And Mrs. Fields will, you can add a personal custom message to, uh, or, or even a company logo or a family photo to the gift boxes. You know, Mrs. Fields is a real person. She's not one of these Betty Crocker, Sarah Lee corporate inventions. There's a real... There was a real Debbie Fields, and she made amazing cookies and brownies, and, uh, and these are her recipes. Well, to uh, sweeten the deal, our listeners will get 20% off their entire order... If they go to MrsFields.com and enter the promo code Omnibus, that's M-R-S-F-I-E-L-D-S.com, Mrs. Field, or Mrs. Fields, or Mrs.com, <laughs> and enter Omnibus, that's 20% off. 20% off any gift at MrsFields.com, promo code Omnibus, or to look at it another way, 20% more delicious cookies for the same price. My kids ate... They finished off the whole box while I was thinking of bringing it to a party we'd have been invited to. And I went down to grab the box and it was suspiciously light because my kids loved them. I am not a dummy. And so I put my Mrs. Fields box of cookies on top of the refrigerator without revealing to anyone in the house where these delicious cookies were coming from. You just have shorter children and than then I do. I just, no, then I just, I, I, I trickle the cookies out into the, into the Roderick verse and everybody goes, wow, amazing. But I keep the stash. My son is six foot one. I can't fool him by hiding cookies on top of the fridge anymore. There are a lot of cookies in this box. Mrsfields.com, promo code Omnibus. Your cookies are on the way. What's crazy is when Anchorage did get cable TV and got those those television top boxes, the um, you know, the little yeah. the little metal box that was the interface, the boxes came with a key. That you could lock certain channels. You you could have the Playboy channel, but but keep your kids from watching it by having this key in the side that you, if you turned it and pulled the key out, whatever channels you decided to make off limits to your kids, they couldn't see. 
It was a physical mechanical thing. A key that Because there kept... was not enough electronics in the TV to do it any other way. Right. You kept it on a string around your neck that was the key to the, to the hot channels. It's my Playboy key. But someone, some kid, and I have no idea of, to the... This is, the, this is one of the great mysteries in my life. Let's Ca- solve it. Let's solve it right now. Cable came into Anchorage, and within a very short amount of time, the rumor went around the, my high school. If you take the security key out of the lock and you stick it in the fourth vent hole from the left in the back of the box, it will short circuit it and you can get all the channels. I don't buy this for a second. It 100% is true. It worked? The You could somehow, through the vent hole, you could reach something that would short circuit the... The short circuit the controls. So... Imagine how that was discovered. How? That's the mystery. How was that? What kid took the key out of the side and started sticking it in the vent holes in the back? I mean, the thing about teenage boys is, you know, when, you, when you're horny, you will just try every hole. <laughs> but then... And, and you remember this when... When it, when channels that you didn't subscribe to were scrambled, digitally scrambled, so sure. it would be kind of a weird double image, yeah, and, and the the colors would be colors were all crazy. off sync, and you couldn't quite make out the 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 picture, although you could see that there was a picture behind it. Mm-hmm. Somehow, this key in the back of the box stopped that, and I don't know how that worked. I don't know how from their local headquarters they were sending a signal to the box that scrambled certain channels and not others. You're doing this to the box, not the set, right? To the box, not the TV set. So everybody's got the same box. Yeah, and everybody could take the key out, stick it in the fourth hole over. It didn't work in any of the other holes. And once you did it, it eliminated the digital interference and you could watch perfectly Who all was the that channels. hero it almost it's so perfect it almost seems like it speaking of culture jamming and hacking it must maybe it was some back door <laughs> like did somebody have did the designer put in a secret way to, this is, to override the the jam i have considered all of these possibilities that this can't that this was somebody who who you know said to his younger cousin like look i work at i work at the cable company and here's the secret and we you know we did it who knows why um but for two years Every teenager in Anchorage could get all the channels, and no one ratted it out. This is why you're such a libertine. It's not just you. There's a whole you have a whole cohort yeah. of depraved people like you, yeah. probably, to who from who, your untrammeled access to to uh, Playboy After Dark. Well, and what it required was that your parents did not use the system because if they took the key, yeah, then the key was gone. Right, so your parents had to be the ones that just didn't subscribe to the dirty you channels. You had the most goody-goody parents. Yes, yeah, right. So if your parents just got the basic cable, they left the key in the box. Because think, think of those heartbroken parents. We did everything right. We didn't even get Cinemax, and somehow, somehow. little well, Bobby. The thing is, the parents never knew about it. Well, it was a, they it, do now. It was a universal kid conspiracy <laughs> to have free cable. It was. I, I still marvel at it. This should be a movie. Like there should be a movie of this. Well, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that it's a thick enough plot to sustain a whole feature. Then something happens here. This I'm thinking like a screenwriter now. What I would do is I would have something happen. Oh sure, right? Well, you get sucked into the box and then you live in a TV world. <laughs> I wasn't going to do this with Max twist. Headroom, who also <laughs> got sucked into a box. So speaking of culture jamming, Max Headroom. Max, Max, Max. Prior to Max Headroom, let's uh, let's go back to a time even before Vision. 
when there was only the three stations on TV and PBS, Mm -hmm. ABC, CBS, and NBC, and PBS, the four stations that those of us who are old enough to remember a time before Facebook, um, that was what we... That was that was that defined our childhoods. It's why you were so good at Jeopardy. You Bef- had one channel before infinite TV. Yeah, before uh, literally every uh, TV idea. It's like the the mul- the multiple universes conceit. Every possible universe now exists as a streaming TV show. <laughs> but that was not the case. Not the always. case. Right. Although you cannot watch the Studio Ghibli movies anywhere, as far as I can tell. That's true. Do you know? Do you know a place? Do you know where I can watch Spirited Away? Without owning a DVD player? Speaking of culture jamming, before those were widely available in the U.S., I bought pirated discs. You did? Of that. Is that really culture jamming? No, they're, they're no. children's cartoons. No, that's just... Uh, that's just consumer fraud. Yeah, that's just stealing. I just, I just stole money from the, the geniuses who produced the art. You know, video piracy is not a victimless crime, Ken. Uh, no, it's actually good for the artist. It creates an audience. <laughs> Haven't you heard? Well, there is an audience for Studio Ghibli movies. I am it, and I cannot find them. They don't stream. They're owned by some subcommittee of Disney. Just by physical optical discs. Yeah. I don't have a DVD player. Is I that right? I don't watch TV on the microwave. Just hold it up to hold it up to the light then and watch things <laughs> shimmer on the circles in Totoro light. I can't put a key in the back of that. <laughs> in, in 1977... In the United Kingdom, um, one fateful night in, I guess, November, the television broadcast, the BBC broadcast, was spookily interrupted. The, the, The screen started to flicker. I am V for Vendetta. Almost Exactly that. Really? A voice came on and said, this is Vrilon. Vrilon? Of the space... Was it Darth Vader know, from Planet Vulcan? <laughs> of, the, of the space imperial order of, you know, advanced civilizations. And very super spooky voice. And Vrilon proceeded to... Um, you, you could still see the, the, the flickering image of the normal newscaster but Vrillon intoned on and on oh so you were just hearing his voice just hearing his audio only intrusion yeah um he spoke at length for five minutes or so what what were his demands in a british voice (laughs) or as they would call it there a voice (laughs) saying you know well, time of war is at an end, and you people need to join the universal. You know, uh, we are watching you, and this is the this is the first contact, the beginning of a new age. Was he pretending to be some kind of a space alien? He wasn't Churchill, which I'm doing my <laughs> kind of Churchill. He was. I, he, I, I I've listened to the broadcast, and it is spooky, but it's. But now, by our standards today, it is hilariously spooky. Um, like it's oh, it's campy? Super campy. But you can tell that the person doing it is dead serious. Although although he's serious and he's trying to do a War of the Worlds thing where they imagine they're going to spook everybody and, and people are going to run out into the streets and think that UFOs have arrived. He doesn't appear to have any kind of ideological aim. It's not like uh, wake up sheeple. Yeah, it's ideological in that he wants 
his desire is not to create panic in the streets as much as it is to wake up people to the idea that there's a universal commonality between human beings and oh, um, he's, he's Starfleet. Yeah. And he wants, he wants to put an end to war. This is the, and it, it's obviously a hoax, but I think we were, I mean, this was during the era 1977 when all it took was a little bit of theremin music and the suggestion that there was a Bermuda triangle and, uh, no, no child could sleep. Yeah. None of us could sleep for a week. Right. And so it was in that family of, um, and, and television broadcasts were somewhat sacrosanct. Right. I mean, that's the main taboo you're seeing broken. You thought the BBC was all powerful because here's the guy you see every night and nope. And it, Vrillon is more powerful than this guy. And it was, I think, um, I think partly, uh, that that worked in their favor in or they expected it to uh in that to have enough uh broadcasting power to have enough wattage to override the BBC because there it's an arm of the government right, right? that's state tv right so it the only people that could do it were ufos now that alone is hilarious to imagine that ufos could come to our world but not have enough broadcasting power to also put video up <laughs> to like completely override the BBC. It and was an aesthetic choice. <laughs> not just they like, come from the dark planet. Ew, ew, it's Virilon. Was Virilon ever uh, apprehended? Uh, Virilon escaped justice. Oh, man. And, uh, Still out there today. And it was a, uh, it, you know, it was, it was a contained scandal, partly because the BBC was embarrassed and never wanted – didn't report on it. Didn't – didn't. if you weren't watching the program at the time, you wouldn't have heard about it later except, you know, sort of underground gossip. Um, but it didn't – you know, it didn't make the newspapers and it was because of a monolithic media right. control. I mean, to this day, the British government can slap a whatever order on some story and then nobody can report on it. Right. It's gone. The The – the curious thing about it, as we'll see, is that um, as as shortwave radio technology and and um, you know enthusiast radio stuff became more powerful and more common, it didn't actually require a massive transmitter to overpower the BBC. It only required that you be in the right place. Um, this was this was the first intrusion, and there weren't a ton of, or there weren't really any documented attempts to override the the tele- television. There were no copycats. No copycats until about ten years later, in the mid '80s, there was a little rash of this kind of event. Um, Did you have a little rash in the mid '80s? I had more than a little rash. I had this terrible condition where I licked my fingers all the time and I put hand lotion on all the time. I think it was some puberty thing. We were my, all nervous about Reagan. My skin started peeling. It was awful. But that's probably unrelated to yeah. these Yeah. Well, no, microwave radiation. It was one of the things <laughs> I considered. Um, the, the, um, the rise of, of like what we called visions in Anchorage, but, but home box office and Showtime where they, they were – the first alternative to 
regular television. Predated VCRs even. You, this is the way to watch movies in your house. For the first time in history, you could watch a movie without, wait, without waiting for it to show up with commercials on, on NBC Friday Night Movies. And it required that you have, a, that you have an antenna put up mm-hmm. on your house and that you, you subscribe, that you pay the fee. And it's, a, it's amazing to think that enough people did it, enough people wanted it, and that there was money to be made in charging a subscription that, would, that made it worth sending trucks around and putting antennas up on all, on all these people's houses. But there was. In fact, in fact, there were Visions trucks, very identifiable. You would see a Visions truck parked out in front of somebody's house and say, wow, they're getting Visions. Alaska's a long, dark winter. You know, Dad yeah. is, must be really raking in the oil money, <laughs> something, for them to be able to get Visions. There's just not a lot of options, not a lot of entertainment options back then. Uh, almost zero entertainment options. That's right. That's what, that's what we called it. That's what we, that was the slogan. It said on the Alaska license plate, it said almost zero, Alaska, almost zero entertainment options. Almost zero options. In 1986, uh, in the spring of 1986, a, um, an HBO broadcast in Florida was interrupted by what, what we were what we used to see, which was a sort of rainbow, um, like color palette. The test pattern. Test pattern screen came up in the middle of a broadcast of Falcon and the Snowman. <laughs> the great. Uh, see, this is why you were paying a premium price for HBO back then, because you could watch movies like The Falcon and the Snowman, uh, which would play six times a day. <laughs> and this was... April of 86. So I was working at Catch-22 at this time. This was my senior year in high school. I was a Catch-22 employee. Are you um, saying you have an alibi? In fact, I do have an <laughs> alibi. In fact, you know, I worked the night of my senior ball. I went to senior ball with my date, went to some parties after after the, uh, you know, the dance was over in a white limo or whatever with my, my prom date. And then I went... I said goodnight to everybody. And you went to work. Left my date in her ball gown at some party with my friends and went to work at Catch-22 and worked in my, in my prom tuxedo. You played Kenny Rogers and, and Run DMC videos. Right, until, until uh, 9 o'clock the following And Richard's following promise held. You never appeared on camera. Unfortunately for Richard, I did appear on camera because no one was watching at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and so I routinely turned the camera on. I didn't do it for long because I didn't want to get I didn't want somebody to turn their VCR on and bust me, but you know, I would, I would show up on camera and I'd be like, Hey, you're listening to, you know, you're watching catch 22 Anchorage's only music video station. And then I would close the my, John Roderick intrusion. <laughs> that could have been your first band. The John Roderick intrusion. Everybody welcome the John Roderick intrusion. Well, on this fateful night in 1986, a, uh, this test pattern showed up and it had some, uh, it had some writing on the test pattern that said, um, that was from a from an intruder by the name of Captain Midnight. Mm. Now we don't know we don't know well we didn't at first. The residents there did not know um, who Captain Midnight was. No one knows who he were or what he were doing. <laughs> uh, and Captain Midnight was upset that HBO had raised their prices. And Captain Midnight's little test screen said. Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. 
twelve ninety five a month? No way. What a subversive. <laughs> With all the political causes to be mad about in 1985, this guy doesn't care about Nicaragua. He, nope. doesn't, he doesn't care about acid rain or nope. NATO. He is worried about HBO jacking up prices at buck fifty a month. And what it turned out, he was busted. Uh, what it what it turned out was that um, he worked. He his name was John John McDougal, and he worked as a as a um, like a cable uplink technician. Oh. It's a inside job. Yeah, he worked for the Central Florida Teleport Uplink Station. Yeah, CFTUS, sure. <laughs> and um and he was mad because he had a side job where he installed uh HBO equipment uh in the you know local community and HBO raised their prices and he was afraid it was going to it was going to cut into his installation business. This is when you turn into one of those guys that gives people illegal free cable. And then it's just, it's good for the market when prices go up. Right. He should have wandered around and said, uh, and said, hey, hey, kid, hey, kid, hey, fellow kids, come he's here. In a, he's in a van and he's got, hey, I've got some free HBO here that I'm trying to unload. Just put the key in the back. We just had too Ken. much HBO at our event. So this was the first documented case in the United States of somebody intruding on a, uh, on a television broadcast. Isn't it so funny that as a culture, we're like, you know what sacrosanct, you know what our holy place, our temple, our uh, Jerusalem is? It's uh, the public airwaves. That's right. Above all else. Above all else, do not touch our television. Now, do you remember Max Headroom, the the titular uh, lead of our story? I do. He had a short-lived TV series, mm-hmm. which I never did see. It was British. Uh, the the original oh, idea, right? yeah, it was from the UK. It's some kind of British American thing, or that's what I assume because the actor was Canadian, right? And usually that happens when uh, it's a British American thing, <laughs> and you know, if you take a British mom and an American dad, What's you get 50%? a Canadian. Somebody who talks like an American but says serviette instead of napkin. <laughs> but I remember he was omnipresent. Even if you never watched the TV show, you would hear about this kind of cartoonish cyberpunk guy because he'd be on he was on the cover of Newsweek. Yep. He was in ads for New Coke, which tells you everything you need to know about Max Headroom. Max Headroom was like a lot of things that came from the UK. He was um it had a very subversive origin story. Max the idea of Max Headroom was that he was a um a like a television personality, a, a, an anchor a news program anchor mm-hmm. in a world, a future world, not very far in the future. In fact, only 20 minutes in the future. Not like our listeners. Not like the are, omnibus. Who are 20 million minutes in the future. Um, and, uh, but it was in a, it, he lived in a media environment uh, and one might say presciently lived in a media environment where there was, uh, where it was all television all the time. We were all on television. Good thing that didn't happen. Television was, um, like if you were too poor, you got subsidized televisions because we all needed to be, needed to be on TV. But they uh, somehow he got absorbed into. Oh, what it was was his intelligence. Uh, the the newscaster's intelligence was uploaded into. This was before he there was a web. The, he predicted the cloud. Yeah, uh, uploaded and became a, the sentient character Max Headroom, who was fighting for the resistance. You know, it was. A culture jamming. Now, if you've never seen Max Headroom, you have to understand that he looks like a computer-generated image, kind of like something you would have seen maybe on the brother or the uh, 
Money for Nothing video right. at the time. But this was before the technology allowed right. for that. Uh, at least not affordably, you know, at British Doctor Who levels. of So in, in charmingly low-tech BBC science fiction fashion, it's just a guy wearing a bunch of angular makeup. And, and plasticized, right? He had a plastic yes, suit on. he looks on. shiny, and uh, he's in front of a background that looks, that's supposed to look like a pixelated computer-rendered background, but it's, it's not. Right. It's just a hand-animated, uh, old-timey fashion. And it's actor Matt Frewer, who, you know, Futurelings, I'm sure remember from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, mm-hmm. or uh, he's on Orphan Black now. But still out there, still getting work, still getting work. Good, good and, job, Matt. And, and not in porn. He didn't slide down in a porn. He made it up, <laughs> climbed the ladder. But he's he's just a guy goofing around in front of a screen in kind of herky jerky ways, video enhanced that make it look like he's computer animated. He's computer animated, and that he is has intruded on our program. Right? He's glitchy, and there's a little bit of. Uh, kind of static incorporated into it, like, we interrupt your show for... There's video effects. Headroom. His characteristic talk is that he's stuttering a bit. And he, it, 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 but it's really just because they're replaying a few frames over and over to make it look like... Yeah, it's jittery, The culture right? is being jammed. What the hell is going on here? And, and it became... Uh, he, he became, uh, like, pervasive in the culture because it, it, it resonated. It struck a note with people that... Um, that we were becoming, uh, a, like there was now a hundred channels, or there were a hundred channels of of different media options. Most of them were sports, as now, but um, the billiards channel. But MTV was was considered something that was um, that was destroying our youth and um, introducing people in the heartland to. Uh, R&B music and, and um, you know, New York City DJs were suddenly talking to us, even in such far-flung locations as Anchorage. Downtown Julie Brown had a British accent. She did. Is and that what she was you a black want, lady. Is that what you want, my friends? And a, they were- Someone who's both black and British? If you watched MTV all night long, maybe you would see that Captain Sensible video one time. <laughs> um, but you, but, but it, was, it was seen to be undermining- uh, society by the by the by the usual culprits who are looking for things that are undermining society. But Max Hedrum was very quickly co-opted. He was co-opted. <laughs> He's selling us Coke. More people prefer the new refreshing taste of Coke over Pepsi. Sweating. He became a pitchman <laughs> for New Coke, the um, the Pepsi-like Coke product that only lasted. It, New Coke lasted even even less time than Max Headroom. That's why. That's why it's so funny that they chose. You know, they're picking Max Headroom, thinking this is youthful. It's tech forward. <laughs> right. Uh, this is the future. And within six months, they had both disappeared <laughs> into the memory hole forever. But uh, so Max Headroom arrived on the scene even before Captain Midnight, and so uh, the idea that that this was possible. Um, was was prevalent in the culture, maybe not prevalent, but but those of us who were on the cutting edge of of uh, the new video the new video future could could picture this as a source of um, of rebellion, yeah, right? It's, the, it's, it's subversive satire because you could see you could see a world in which uh, the Reagan administration was controlling access to media and all you were given were uh falcon crest reruns 
and we and and this was i mean punk rock was happening uh second wave punk rock was happening as a as an alternative subterranean culture throughout the united states and there wasn't a ton of access to mainstream media if you weren't aware uh of the dead kennedys it's not like you were going to get exposed to it on your local news program and the only way maybe to get to people was to break in, break into the TV. Max Hedren was named after a sign, right? There was – the creator saw a sign that said, you know, Max, Max, Max Hedren, Hedren 9 feet or whatever. Right. You know, it's just, short, been, for, just know, short for maximum. Three Hedren. meters, of course, because it was from the United Kingdom. <laughs> right. So it's fully – it's a – you know, it's a it's, – it's Dada, basically. It's a, it's a meaningless kind of fun name. Um, but Max Hedrum – there was a there was another wait a minute there was another intrusion into cable broadcasts and it happened in September of 87 and that was uh now maybe the reverse of what you would expect which was a late night pornographic cable the american ecstasy channel with three x's the american X. <laughs> XXX to see channel. It seems fake. There were multiple low rent competitors. To, it's like the American KKK channel, except it's the American <laughs> XXX to see channel. Uh, their, their broadcast of some dirty porn was interrupted. The worst kind. Was <laughs> interrupted by uh, some Bible quotes. Wow. So this is already enough of a trope that it can, that people can do the. The postmodern twist on it. Well, not yet, right? This is only the third time it's happened. But that's very early for someone to be like, well, we've already seen the, the, the crazy subculture thing replacing the monolith. Let's do the other thing. So so there was, a again, like a, a text appeared on the screen. I'm assuming it's not a sincere uh, believer. Unfortunately, you are wrong. Oh! Appeared on the screen, thus saith the Lord thy God, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is just some televangelist with, with good hacking skills? So it was, uh, by this point in time, the FBI and the FCC were concerned about this because it, because it really did look like a um, potentially seditious, if you, if you could just interrupt the regular broadcasts with, with, with whatever crazy alien conspiracy or apocalyptic uh, Bible verse, what, what, what was sacred? In America, you know that that could potentially be dangerous. It, beca- you, it became a fictional trope around this time. Of you know, in in movies, you'd you'd often have the villain be able to do this kind of thing. I'm the Joker speaking to you on every channel. It did in Christian Slater, and it, it became yeah. uh, and in in fact, even into our contemporary movies, right? Uh, it still is a is a trope. It's just taken for granted that the supervillain can appear on every channel at once if he needs to. That's right. Hold Gotham hostage, and and. Um, and that is that that movie idea and that cultural idea. Really, it only has these very few, this few handful of antecedents. The okay. FBI and the FCC investigated, and again, the thing that that uh, the thing that caught Captain Midnight, the reason that the the FBI was able to identify him, was that the typeface he used to say, "Good evening, HBO, twelve ninety five a month, no way." It was a typeface that could only be generated by a small amount of equipment. 
and they recognized the typeface or the FBI, you know, got, got to the bottom of it and realized, Hey, only the central Florida teleport uplink station has that key code machine that, that generates that font. If you were ever in law enforcement, wouldn't you want to be a font cop? I know that would be my dream. Isn't that so fun? That's just like, wait a minute. That's not Garamond. (laughs) That's Palatino. Bring them in boys. And that's what happened here. Also, they realized that uh, that there was some uh, some quality to the to the text, the the shapes, the the shape and quality of the text that directed their attention to the Christian Broadcasting Network, and there was an engineer, Captain Thessalonians. <laughs> his name was Thomas Haney, and Thomas was a Christian broadcast uh, engineer who, at the end of his shift just sort of turned his equipment over to the left and uh, and jammed the signal of the porno broadcast that was coming out of the neighboring building. It kind of implies that anybody with access to an antenna back then just could have made small modifications and just done this. There were hundreds or thousands of, of private enterprises that had the power to do this. Well, so there were, in a lot of cases, if it was a hardwired signal, right, you, didn't, you wouldn't have this option. And I mm-hmm. suppose you could get your uh, your little dish and put it up in front of your neighbor's vision antenna and jam his signal. But you couldn't <laughs> <That's>, like... <laughs> that's if you're trying to do some... You're trying to drive your neighbor mad. Hey, Bob. Ch- change your will. <laughs> trim your wisteria. Your dog is barking. <laughs> Hi, it's The Herd. This just in. It's officially fall, and that means a lot of things to a lot of people. The leaves are changing colors. Time to break out the pumpkins, break out the football, and most importantly, break out the truly hard seltzer. Truly has only 100 calories, but has 5% ABV and only one gram of sugar per container. It's the can't-miss drink of the season, so pick up Truly Hard Seltzer today. Truly, drink what you truly want. There was a lot of, uh, you know, fairly, um, it was beginning to proliferate that there was microwave transmission was a component of how television stations did their, did their business. And we'll see in the, uh, in the now finally topic of today's show in the max headroom intrusion, which happened, uh, did it happen 55 minutes into the show, (laughs) which happened in this same year, in November of 1987. So just a couple months after Thomas Haney strikes a blow for Jesus. That's right. Um, on the television station WGN, which is a major uh, station in Chicago, Chicago, Illinois, for those of you in the future who are like, Chicago, you mean of the Midwestern uh, Space Alliance? At the, time, <laughs> at the time, WGN was kind of a trailblazing, trend-setting station. They were just a local Chicago station that had decided they could be a regional, Midwestern, and national station right. if they started putting their programming on satellites. And when we had cable TV, when cable TV was introduced into Anchorage, we had WGN we as one too. of the channels. And you, it was very confusing. You're like, why do I have this one Atlanta station and this one Chicago station? Yeah, and the one from Boston, right? Yeah. There, were, there were a handful. Oh, and you could watch Crazy Eddie commercials because you had that one from New York. <laughs> but uh, at 9 p.m. during the news program in WGN, suddenly the broadcast was interrupted, not by some little uh, like test pattern screen with with a complaint about the about cable prices, but with Max Headroom. Um, Finally, one of these with production values. And the production values were low 
It was a guy in a Max Headroom mask. Was it a commercially available? Could you buy Max Headroom masks? Yeah, it was a Halloween costume. Because Furrer went through five hours of makeup every morning to put the forehead on. Yeah, this was just a rubber mask, but it looked convincingly enough like Max Headroom. And instead of an animated background of of like sketchy digital lines... Uh, the background was a corrugated metal door that some that looked very much like the the metal. <laughs> Anything with stripes, I guess. And uh, someone was holding the door and moving it at randomly behind him. So there's multiple people in this gang. So that it looked like it really looked like, I mean, a, a, a weird, like in some ways an even spookier version of Max Headroom. Like, what am I watching here? And it intruded into the the sports broadcast. Completely overpowering the WGN broadcast. Completely overpowering the the uh, bull score, or whatever. Uh, right? And it was, and it, it came with audio, which was just intrusive static. And the guy in the Max Headroom mask was sort of like, wow, kind of flailing, flailing, while the screen in the background, uh, you know, or or the corrugated metal door in the background moved around. It was unsettling. Yeah, that's a horror uh, aesthetic that persists today in, um, you know, things like The Ring, where just there's something about lo-fi, low-production value work. Yeah. Like, cheap art does not look hokey. If if done right, it looks very scary. Yeah. So something about our brain wants nice, polished art. And this did not belong. <laughs> right. It only lasted 20 seconds because the uh, the team of engineers at WGN were on the case. A crack team. And at the they, superstation. They switched their uh, they switched their frequency to a different repeater. Now, do you think that means they already had a plan in place? If n- this ever happens to us, they had a plan in place in case uh, they had a redundancy uh-huh. because in case something uh, went outage, wrong, yeah. right? In case there was an outage, they could switch over to a different transmitter. So, so it bears explaining the WGN studios were in, you know, a building in North Chicago, but in order to broadcast to the greater Chicagoland area, um, their, their big transmitter, their big antenna was on top of the Sears tower and, and on, on top of the, they had a couple on, on top of the John Hancock building and on top of the Sears tower. And the way the system worked was they, they, uh, they produced their television show and then they beamed it to the to a repeater on top of the big building where the real power of the transmitter resided and then it was then it's the secret of the pyramids america's tallest building <laughs> opened its third eye and blasted the superstition and the white sox game all over the country that's right uh and so in order to jam in order to to um to take over those airwaves, all someone had to do was get closer to the John Hancock building with a powerful enough signal that if it was, you, it's basically just a line of sight thing. Yeah. You just have to point it. And if they pointed it at the receiver, all they had to do was be slightly closer because the, <laughs> because WGN didn't have a massive transmitter sending that signal up. Mm-hmm. They just had to get in the way. And send a slightly stronger signal that was stronger only because it was more proximate. You just have to be the fan at the on the jumbotron who realizes that they can jump up in front of the row <laughs> that you're currently seeing and do a little dance. Yeah, it's that on a on a media level. And you you, you needed to be sophisticated enough to know 
about all this and to, to know where to be able to figure out what the line of sight was and figure out how to get in between it. Um, but that was all it took. And they, and it fooled the, the larger transmitter into, into broadcasting the, the signal that was closer. And so the WGN engineers, you know, just switched over, sent their signal to a different, uh, a different broadcaster and they switched that. And, and so after 20 seconds, the, the initial max headroom intrusion, uh, was thwarted. So we don't know what they had planned. If they thought they had five minutes, maybe they did have a message to read. Well, so we do know because it was only a few hours later that in the midst of, and you, you saw this in the future, you foresaw it, uh, in the midst of a doctor who broadcast, <laughs> on the local PBS affiliate, suddenly the uh, the signal switched over. Oh, he's, to he's on a different channel. Max Headroom, fake Max Headroom is the king of all media, and you can see in the broadcast the sort of uh, those weird sort of tape skit skittish lines that indicate that it is a VHS tape. Yeah, Tra- it's the tracking. The tracking <laughs> as, is skews a little bit at the very start of it, so you know it's not a live broadcast. And here is Max Headroom, but this time accompanied by audio, in addition to the static. And he is riffing, riffing on, riffing in a way that uh, that really makes you, I guess, really pinpoints exactly what you were saying was. It was so amateur, so... Uh, so Dada in a kind of self-conscious mid eighties punk rock idea of what a Dada uh, intrusion might be that the amateurness of it, the, the, the strangeness of it made it weirder and, and seem worse. The, the brain wants order. The brain wants to impose all stimuli, a system on all stimuli. So we understand so we categorize it into a way so we understand what we're seeing and we know what to expect next. And when we can't do it because the input is so absurd, it's very unsettling because we don't know. He, anything could happen now. He hums the theme to the the short-lived television uh, cartoon Clutch Cargo. <laughs> he, um, he kind of disparages a WGN sportscaster. Oh, he got specific Chicagoland references. He holds up a can of Pepsi and and says the the catch line for new Coke. Oh, that's he, crazy! Yeah, a little bit of uh, of culture jamming there. He uh, has a dildo on his finger and waves it around. He the uh, again the background is. Uh, we should it, emphasize for the future: the real Max Headroom never played with dildos, as far as we know. On never camera. on screen. Never on, on screen. Yeah. Uh, on weekends, that's his business. And then the screen, and then the scene cuts to a slightly different uh, vantage point, where what we, I guess, can assume is Max Headroom uh, turns around and his pants are down, and we see his bottom, and then a. So there's actually there's cuts in this. Yeah. There's, well, one cut. He, he's he's made a movie. He's made and a then movie. a woman in a maid costume appears. We don't see her face. And proceeds to swat him on the butt with a fly swatter, <laughs> while he says, "You know, you know, give it to me, baby." There's a little bit of swearing, and this 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 intrusion lasts for ninety seconds. 
because no one at the PBS station, there were no engineers on duty. They had just put, they Let's popped turn in the, on six hours of Tom Baker, era Doctor Who, and we're going to call it a night. So I know what this is like. When I worked at Catch-22, and, and again, I apologize to Richard, sometimes around five o'clock in the morning, I would get very sleepy. And there was, we had a, a, a videotape that was about 20 minutes long of, Ricky Skaggs at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival playing, or it was, you know, it was Hot Rise and the, and the, you know, Buttermilk Biscuit band. (laughs) And they were playing a very extended jam, bluegrass jam. And when I needed a cat nap, I would put this, this bluegrass, you know, we were only supposed to play 30 or three minutes of it, but I would put it in and just let it play. And would lay down on the studio floor and, and catch a little catnap. So I know what this is like, and I know that at this PBS station, that's what they were doing. They had a long, long run of Doctor Who, and it's PBS, so there weren't commercial breaks, and there was nobody minding the store. So this 90-second intrusion was it wasn't thwarted by any engineer. To this day, I, I, I noticed once that a local music radio station here in Seattle put on Teenage Riot by Sonic Youth an awful lot. <laughs> and I asked somebody once at KEXP, why do you guys play Teenage Riot? I mean, I love Teenage Riot, but why are you playing that so much? And they're like, oh, it's seven minutes, you know, the album version seven minutes long. We play that once the DJ needs to go to the bathroom. Right. So every time I now hear Teenage Riot on the radio, I, I can't help but imagine somebody in a restaurant. Somebody's stall. going to the bathroom. Yeah. That's right. Um, but this, so this event was, uh, it made the news. Unlike the BBC, uh, this, this was, Enough time, we we were in the middle of this cultural moment where, as you say, this, I think, was a big part of the inspiration of of a generation of people that imagined this was how the revolution was going to start. Hackers. Now that, and it was, and it was, it was the dawn of, of uh, media hacking and it was widely reported. It was, uh, it was in the newspaper, it was in the Chicago Tribune, it was, People talked about it on the evening news. Well, back then, all the big influencers in the culture were huge Doctor Who fans. Mm. So they were furious. In fact, uh, a lot of the response, the only reason we have documentation of it is all the Doctor Who fans that were taping the show. Home taping. You wanted to have your, remember this? You wanted to have your own home library of your favorite shows. And there were a lot of people really pissed off that 90 seconds of an episode of Doctor Who was missing. (laughs) Now they had this great cultural artifact on their VHS tapes. But they wanted 90 more seconds of the Dalek men. They were furious. (laughs) Um, So the FCC and uh, the FBI now having solved the uh, the earlier criminal uh, enterprises of the CBN hacker and the um, and the Captain Midnight incident, uh, they really wanted to go after the Max Headroom team, and there were you know there was a kind of an aggressive pursuit of it. But the head of the FCC was uh, was too timid; didn't really didn't really pour his money or his attention into the into the investigation and the and the team behind the max headroom intrusion escaped uh there was a lot of hullabaloo about it and this was there weren't a ton of laws on the books prohibiting this kind of thing Um, one of the things that one of the things that was confusing about the cbn case was that the only thing they could charge him with was unlawful, uh, unlicensed intrusion into broadcast. But he was licensed. 
<laughs> he was a licensed broadcaster. Was, was that his defense? <laughs> um, you know, even Pat Robertson came to that guy's defense, if you can imagine. Pat Robertson intruding in, into a cultural debate. Well, yeah, but he that he's only going to want that one particular case. He doesn't That's want right. the maid with the fly swatter coming no. on to the seven hundred club. No, he doesn't. If he want, if he did, he could invite her. And hard to believe that the that the perpetrators of the Max Headroom intrusion had any. I mean, there there's no message. Uh, it's just gibberish. The only message is we can do. Yeah, this. the medium is the message, right? Like your your programming is not safe. But it's not even um, – he didn't even – like the Virilin guy at least was aware of – self-aware of th- of that idea, right? We are intruding on your broadcast. We control the horizontal. Whereas Max Headroom is just – he just is. Go- he's just goofing. that makes it scarier. He scarier. doesn't even. He doesn't even. He's not even. It doesn't even trouble him that what he's done. Like he's got this opportunity, and what's he going to do? Literally any dumb thing he wants. Right. Just totally waste your time and be a <laughs> be a weird bummer. Like, and they, you know, they've recorded it in advance and and made an they, edit. They, they could have made anything. <laughs> yeah. They've got yeah. A, they've got a camcorder. Yeah. And they made that. Yeah. They could have done a you know ninety seconds of truly seditious material. You know, the Reagan administration is. Whatever, and then they just... They he, could have been punching up... Uh, they could have thrown darts at a picture of Thatcher, and nope. <laughs> to this day, we do not know... Now, the statute of limitations on this crime uh, ended five years later. Uh, and nobody came forward to No say. one came <laughs> forward. And they this became somewhat legendary in hacker culture. Um, it was... This was the early dawn of... of uh, there, there was a sort of nascent internet at the time, mm-hmm. and people were talking about it. It was on message boards. It was a, it was an exciting kind of, um, you know, like an example of of maybe what was possible among these. I mean, the early internet people and the ham radio people kind of overlapped a little bit. <laughs> I don't mean to disparage either camp. They weren't all cool like Matthew Broderick in War Games. <laughs> they didn't all have a cute. Alicity girlfriends, and that was you know war games was another influence on this. You know the idea that you could um, that you could. It seemed like magic to most of the people seeing that movie that you could put your phone in a little cradle and then you could talk to government agencies. No, how would that even work? Right, get not only talk to them but get in and screw screw with them. Mm-hmm. The revolution will be televised. Is uh, so? Why do you think they never came forward? I guess my theory would be that it ruins the trick. It ruins the trick. You, there, you would there's, then, a, there's an air of mystery. You'd have to explain why you were so dumb. Oh, do you think they're vaguely embarrassed now? <laughs> there's been a, there was a there was a whole thread for a while, for a while for a while 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 on Reddit where someone came forward and said member of this this weird hacker culture in Chicago at the time, and I think it was Mr. J and his brother Q, but the suggestion was uh, that they were like you know, kind of profoundly socially awkward brothers who, and one of them was very much on the spectrum, mm-hmm. um, on the spectrum to the degree that it, that in, it made it difficult to communicate, uh, you know, with regulars. Well, he found a woman in a maid costume. And, and there was a lot of speculation about whether or not it was these two brothers, but, um, but with a lot of investigation into it, it seemed just very unlikely, not their aesthetic and and you know, kind of weirdly improbable. But there is still some kind of unsolved mysteries movement of trying to 
unravel who and why? There is. There was a there was a uh, a punk rocker by the name of Eric Fournier who was who had a band called the Blood Farmers, who made a series of videos starring a character of his own called Sh- uh, Shea St. John, and there were it was it was I guess perceived that there were a lot of similarities production wise, um, but all of his bandmates dismiss the possibility. They say he didn't have any of this capability. He wasn't, this wasn't his trip. He, and he's since died. So can neither confirm nor deny. Well, that's what I'm thinking. Like at at some point, you know, in 30 years, somebody's going to be going through granddad's basement after he, you know, died of liver cancer. And they're going to find a, a max headroom mask and a fly swatter sitting in a box somewhere. And we're we're finally going to know. They'll find all the uh, the alternate takes that they rejected for making too much sense. <laughs> and that concludes the Max Headroom Intrusion. Entry 767.jb2415. Certificate number 29692 in the omnibus. Now, listeners, we hope that this transmission has reached you uh, uninhibited by culture jammers and hackers. Uh, if so, you should probably know that uh, in our time, John and I disrupted the culture with our hilarious social media commentary on the events of the day. He was at John Roderick on all the things. I was at Ken Jennings on fewer things. Uh, jointly, we were at Omnibus Project. Uh, our email uh, for those who wanted to contact us. Uh, if anybody wants to confess that they were the Max Headroom killer or not killer, but Doctor Who interrupter. You know, we did hear from uh, from the the geniuses behind the Church of the Subgenius. It's true. Yeah. So this could be the thing now. We could solve for the future all these unsolved mysteries. Please send your confession to theomnibusproject at gmail.com, or if you want to write it with a bunch of weird zodiac symbols, please mail it to Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Uh, others in this time who are, uh, want to share your theories, please do so on the Futurelings Facebook group. That's where you will meet Richard Hadley, who uh, is going to... Richard now lives in Minneapolis and has become a streetcar operator as a hobby. He's a hobbyist. <laughs> as a hobby? Yeah. He also takes pictures of old neon signs throughout the Midwest. He's still a character after all this time. That's exactly what I would expect. So say hi to Richard on the Facebook group or go to Reddit and share your Max Headroom theories on the Futurelings subreddit. Mm -hmm. If you would care to uh, contribute to helping uh, Omnibus Project become a mass media sellout that has no time for... Try new Coke. (laughs) Did you hear that? What was that? (laughs) New Coke. Uh, to fund our amazing culture jamming, uh, we welcome all material donations at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Also, did you mention our uh, our our mailing address? I did. Okay. We're good. You were just too busy. You were too busy trying to think of weird sound intrusions. <laughs> Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the, fit, 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 fear. <laughs> if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.
travel. To recover from heartbreak, to trace your DNA, escape the internet. On our podcast, A Way to Go, we've been exploring all the reasons we travel. I'm Gerilyn Gerba. I'm Pavia Rosati. And together, we're the founders of travel website Fab. And we've already heard so many great stories. Such as an actress in rural Kenya explaining the ins and outs of safe sex. A graffiti artist tagging the islands of Southeast Asia. A producer arranging high fashion photo shoots in the desert. Listen to A Way to Go on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.